Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. All right, welcome everybody to ODI's lunchtime lecture with my good friend, colleague, and confidant, uh, Olivier uh, Thoreau. <laughs> I'm Josh, I'll be your host this evening, uh, and our talk today is on truth, trust, and technology. Now, Olivier is our head of technology, so I'm really expecting him to do good on at least one of these <laughs> topics. Um, just some housekeeping, so if you could keep your questions until the end, uh, use the mic to ask the questions. It's not to enhance your volume. Uh, it's for all the listeners at home. Shout out to Fintan O'Donnell. I know you're watching. Um, and if you are tweeting or talking about this on social media, please use the hashtag ODI Fridays. Olivier, take it away. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. And thanks, everyone, for being here today. Um, back in May, uh, I was pretty much here um, talking to some of you about a project called uh, Archangel, uh, which we were conducting at the time with uh, the University of Surrey and the good people, uh, not the swan, the people behind the swan, the good people of the National Archives. Um, and it was quite an interesting project in that uh, we had been using and developing emerging technology to uh, help uh, guarantee the integrity of uh, digital records. And I, I, I used this, this particular slide then, and I you know, stand by that statement that it was probably one of the, the, uh, the only uh, useful AI and, and blockchain systems out there. Uh, but it was quite an interesting uh, idea that was behind it. And I wanted to spend a little bit more time uh, talking with you about uh, the, the, the notion or the role of technology uh, in the perceived, is it true, I don't know, but in the perceived crisis of truth, truth and truth. That's going to be hell. That's going to be easy. Trust and truth. Uh, I've got to say those words a few times today, so <laughs> bear with me here. Um, and, and I wanted to spend uh, time today with you thinking about those two statements. Uh, they are polar opposites. They might still, still be um, compatible, but there's a um, techno-solutionist uh, notion that tech can fix trust. And the opposite is that tech is the one thing that will break truth. And I want to spend a little bit of time today starting with the first question, can tech fix trust? So there's a, um, a belief uh, long held that, uh, you know, people are complicated. People are messy. Trust is a messy thing. And technology, the cold, hard truth of technology, can help us uh, with those messy uh, people, things, that, and, and help us create trust, underpin trust, or even fix trust. Um, it's not new. Eh? There's an example here of that, that notion of the, the, uh, the lie detector being the one thing that will tell us yay or nay whether a person is lying. And as we know, Polygraphs don't really work very well. But more recently, and um, I'm pointing here at, at some work that uh, we have uh, uh, commissioned by uh, a company called Registered Dynamics. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> this, there may be one of their <laughs> maybe one of their members here in the audience today, or just a fan. Uh, but um, the, the what was really quite interesting, and this was a, a part of a report. Uh, on uh, data trusts that uh, were created earlier this year. But the, the conclusions were very, very similar to what the Archangel Project concluded, which is that uh, there's something inherent to the underpinning 
principles of uh, uh, blockchain uh, distributed ledger technology, that makes them really quite useful to underpin trust. One of it is the mutability of blockchain and uh, you know, Merkle tree-based solutions. And the other one is the auditability. The fact that you've got a ledger means that it is publicly, or not publicly, but it's at least auditable. And that, that no, those two notions together, the fact that it's really hard to rewrite that history and the fact that you can actually go through that history and check it, is actually quite useful to underpin some trust. And, you know, uh, I, I think uh, those, those reports are really, really interesting and I would uh, urge you to, to read them. But there is something uh, a little bit problematic, perhaps, in thinking, that's it. Things like blockchain are going to solve trust. There's a, there's a notion uh, amongst uh, uh, blockchain-loving circles that you don't need trust. Blockchain is going to solve it. It's quite interesting that blockchain is also called a trustless system. So which, which one is it? Is it trustless or is it trustworthy? But more, more seriously, I think we can look back at this piece of technology that is roughly 5,000 years old. A piece of clay tablet, which uh, at the time, I'm sure there, was a, there were people in the clay valley of Mesopotamia uh, that were disrupting trust by saying, look, this piece of technology is immutable. Once you fire it, it, that's it. The written record is there forever. You can trust it. It's written on a piece of clay. <laughs> As we know, the written word is not necessarily sufficient for, uh, um, for trust to, uh, to be uh, maintained. And so technology and the hype around it and the hype around how much it can do to underpin uh, human affairs kind of fades. It goes away, but it's still useful. We are still using the written the written word as a record of things, and we are, we are adding technology to make it uh, more trustworthy or at least kind of counterbalance um, forces uh, uh, that goes against trust in those uh, written systems and, and now digital systems. Another problem that, uh, that we need to consider when we think about whether technology can help underpin trust is that notion of the, the, the edge of those systems. Uh, this is a term that I've been wanting to put on the slide for a very, very long time. So humor me for a minute. Uh, this is actually a term coming from, uh, who was it? I think it was Jamie Fawcett who, uh, who uh, came up with this term. Really lovely. But what, what this means is that a system like, uh, like Archangel, which uh, puts signatures of digital documents into a blockchain system in order to preserve uh, the signatures and uh, guarantee the integrity of those documents is only as safe and secure as the system itself. If the National Archives get a doctored document, they can only say, well, this document we received and that, that has been digitized before us, we can't guarantee the integrity outside of our system. We can guarantee to some extent through technology within that system, but there's an edge to that integrity. And so even a perfect system will have its edges and outside of those edges, we are back to using you know, human mechanisms rather than technological mechanisms. The second question I wanted to look at with you today is the converse. Will tech break trust? And that comes from the notion that we are in a post-truth age. Uh, I think I am part of what uh, potentially, potentially not, uh, Karl Rove called uh, the reality-based uh, community. 
But it, it is true that we've got a little bit of a, a bit of moral panic around technology really being the, the thing that is going to finish breaking trust, uh, which I think uh, some um, Soviet propagandists would find somewhat amusing because they've been doing it for a long, long time. And there's been, you know, there's been propaganda, there's been breaches of truth and trust for a long, long time using whatever technology was available at the time. You know, manipulating photo photographs in the uh, mid 20th century was the thing. But, and now we've got new things that come and that are threatening and that are worrying. And one that is really, really worrying a lot of people at the moment uh, is um, deepfakes. But before that, I wanted to just go back even further than uh, uh, Soviet propaganda. And apologies, uh, I know it's, uh, uh, it's um, kind of uh, fashionable for people to stand at a lectern and, uh, and quote the classics, so I needed to put that in. Uh, <laughs> But you, you know you can you can go back again a few a few millennia and have a moral panic about this written word thing is going to it's going to to, to 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 break truth. We won't remember things. We're going to rely on those things to to record the truth for us, and we're we're going to forget it. All our oral culture is going to decay with this written thing. That's not me saying it. it it's um, well Plato uh, supposedly quoting Socrates in in that uh, Phaedrus dialogue. But so we need, we need to keep that in mind, that notion of uh, technology is going to change our culture in such, a, in such a way that we are going to forget what truth is, has been there for a long time. But now let's look at that notion of deepfakes. Um, when, when, uh, when we started working on, on this uh, presentation, I was expecting to have to explain what a deepfake is. Uh, I'm assuming that all of you here in the audience and watching the stream have seen examples of deepfakes. If not, uh, here's one here on the screen, uh, courtesy, well, not courtesy, which I stole from The Guardian, uh, sorry, borrowed from The Guardian. Um, but that notion that um, uh, kind of deep learning uh, and other machine learning technologies make it really, really efficient and effective to create uh, manipulated videos that are quite... Um, well, there's quite a lot of verisimilitude and you can try and trick people into thinking that the people that you have in your uh, manipulated videos are people that are famous. Uh, deepfakes, as most uh, emerging technologies started in pornography. Quite an interesting thing to, to, uh, to just keep note here. Uh, as someone who's been working, oh, of course it did break. Sorry, let me... Technology... All right, so, uh, so deepfakes have been around for a few years now and they're getting really quite good. And this is why we're hearing about them pretty much daily in the news, or at least the tech press is awash with, this is it, we are doomed, deepfakes are going to completely undermine, undermine truth. And it is true that it is really quite worrying. Um, one of the most poignant points I've, I've read about deepfakes is not so much that deepfakes will make it so that we won't... Uh, uh, will we'll, we'll be uh, fooled by them. It is the possibility that a video or a, or a piece of audio might be a deep fake that will be basically make us question everything. So what are we doing about that? Well, there are ways to detect uh, video manipulations and deep fakes are, there are uh, technologies that are being uh, developed to detect deep fakes. And so we're getting into that arms race. Um, that's a Dr. Strangelove reference for anyone who can't see the, uh, the moving image behind me. 
Um, so again, in that, uh, I believe I showed this, this slide again in May, but I'm really quite proud of it, even though I don't understand half of it. Um, so our partners at the University of Surrey worked on a uh, kind of a deep learning system to detect video manipulation. Uh, and so you can use, and that's interesting, you can use technology to battle technology that is used for disinformation. And you get into that arms race. Uh, and just last week, uh, I was uh, hearing um, Jerome Pesanti, who's uh, leading a, an AI team at, at Facebook, about the, the, the crazy arms race they have against people who are, and in, this, in, in the, the, the case that he gave, because he didn't want, for some reason, to talk too much about uh, political manipulation, he was talking about people trying to sell drugs on Facebook, and how basically they've got um, det um, systems to detect people who are trying to sell drugs through more and more innuendo and nuance and pictures that do not depict the thing but depict a thing that could mean a thing if you know the thing. And so we've got that, we've got our arms race. And yes, we can build that technology. But as I said just earlier, it's not just about that arms race. We need to think beyond the technological arms race to the fact that just a thing existing, even though we get better and better systems to detect them, the fact that we've got the possibility of manipulating videos and make it look like uh, famous politician X said something absolutely outrageous, as if they didn't uh, do that by themselves, is problematic. So we've, we think that the solution, in part, is not so much about getting the technology better to detect things like deepfakes, but it's really about making sure that our culture is ready to deal with that. So one of the uh, projects that um, we've joined and has been announced uh, relatively recently, uh, back in May again, uh, is we're working with the, 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 the likes of Full Fact and a few other fact checkers, not just to make fact checking uh, more automated, because that's, that's tricky, but actually to make sure that we have authoritative uh, factual data available to people and better ways of tracing claims. So if someone says something, that we know where that, that, that came from and that we are able to trace claims uh, so that people have the access to, um, to, to the data and to information and to the ability to know uh, where something came from. Uh, but of course, we also know that uh, it's difficult for most people to uh, engage with data. And so we've, we've uh, almost uh, finished a project with um, the University of Southampton called uh, Data Stories, which is all about figuring out how do people engage more with data. If, if you just think of data as rows and rows of numbers in a spreadsheet, then you've got a problem. But if you think of data as things that can be made uh, visual, things that can be uh, engaged with through games, through uh, art, then we can get people and the culture to be much more uh, attuned to data and to facts and to that notion of uh, understanding provenance of what uh, the facts that we are engaging with uh, is, and then hopefully get the culture and the literacy, the technical and data literacy of our culture to be enough that things like deepfakes will not crash truth. So as I said earlier, there is, there is something deeply troubling with the fact that just the fact that deepfakes are there. Uh, could mean that people just go up, this is a fake. Even though you're, you're showing something, or it might be a fake. Even though you're showing something that is 
uh, patently true, and that you can you can have like all that um, provenance uh, available to you. If if people just don't trust things because there might be deepfakes, then we've got a problem. But I wanted to uh, add a little bit of a of a of an optimistic aside here, and I want to talk about the fact that deepfakes themselves are probably not here to stay. So so far I've been in in relatively um, stable terrain. This is the bit where I'm going to try and predict the future, which is a completely, uh, completely a fool's errand. But I think this is relatively safe. And if I'm wrong, well, uh, I'll live with the, the consequences of my, uh, uh, my bad predictions. Um, I don't know if all of you know that notion of the uncanny valley, but it's extremely relevant to, uh, to the kind of um, truth manipulation technologies that we are uh, dealing with here. And the notion of uh, the uncanny valley is that um, our mind uh, is, uh, the, the familiarity increases with likeness to humanity. So if you have something that has, let's say, a face, we tend to react to it better. We are, this is more familiar to us. But there's a so there's a, a growth in the more human that thing looks, the more familiar it is, the more we react positively to it. But at some point, there's a big dip because it starts looking uncanny. And so you've got on the, on the, one, the one hand, uh, things that are completely unfathomable, that are so alien to us that we can't relate to it. But then as you grow to the likes of, I don't know, things like Wally, for instance, you know, somewhat, somewhat bit of a face, and we relate to that well. And then we get into this type of monstrosity. <laughs> With all due respect to uh, Steven Spielberg, I believe. Um, and so I, I'm going to quote someone that way. Uh, I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be the only one insulting uh, those filmmakers and the, the millions that they put into it. Uh, this is, I think, from a Peter Bradshaw. Yeah, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian. It's like it's, it's shriekingly phony. It's not that. It's just that we, we've got a visceral response to things that look almost there but not quite. Um, and this is why, you know, you've got other uh, makers of media, uh, such as uh, Makoto Shinkai uh, in Japan, you know, a place that has been working a lot on robotics and the, in that kind of very similitude to, to humanity in, in, in their robots. And what, what I think is particularly interesting with Makoto Shinkai, and I hope you can see it in this, uh, in this picture, is that he's working with really, really hyper-realistic uh, landscapes. But when it comes to the characters, he goes for that kind of cartoonish um, images because he knows and the industry knows, and I don't understand why that, that kind of um, uh, Hollywood-based uh, 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 media goes for, for hyper-reality because this is much more re relatable, even though you know, no, no one has eyes like this. Of course not. <laughs> but you can uh, convey emotion and you can really relate to that because it's just at that tip of that, um, of that curve of relatability just before it dips into that weird... Apologies, sponsors. <laughs> I didn't mean to knock you. Um, and there's another reason why I think that Uncanny Valley is going to really hit hard when it comes to things like deepfakes. It is that... We, t we tend to think of deepfakes as something that's going to happen for politics mostly. And it really hit home for me when I read this um, tweet by uh, an academic in, in Australia. I'm not going to read it to you because it's really, for me, it's, 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 it made my insides shriek. 
as you walk into shopping malls, your face and that of your friends will appear right in front of you on digital billboards. You'll wear the newest sunglasses and your skin will have been virtually rejuvenated with the latest cosmetic products. For me, and that, and that is a personal thing, you know, for others, they might have really, really strong reactions to other scenarios. But for me, the, the idea that we are going to mix that um, uncanny valley-ness of, you know, generated deep fakes uh, uh, videos with the, 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 the alienation of seeing oneself but not quite is going to really, really hit back quite hard. And, sorry, I keep hitting that, that poor thing. Uh, the, the message I'm trying to convey here, and, it's, uh, and I hope I'm not trying to make it more profound than it is, but is that we've got here a problem that is inherently technical, technological, and that the response to it is not a purely technical one. There are ways to detect deepfakes, but the response to it is cultural, and it's also legal. Uh, California has just announced, and I think they're, they're the second state in the US, but more and more legislatures are basically announcing, that shall not. There are now more and more laws that say that deepfakes cannot be used for certain things. Not, I don't think there's any country that has banned them completely outright, because uh, then you would have to define it uh, uh, very, very uh, clearly, and that's quite hard. But basically, no video manipulation allowed for um, uh, political advertising is what California has gone with, which is quite, quite interesting. So, trying to wrap this up, I want to start by saying I don't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. This is an ever-complex and ever-changing landscape. But I th hope that through these two examples of using um, uh, distributed ledgers and kind of immutable um, data structures like blockchains and, and that question of whether um, certain applications of AI will, will really shatter the truth, that we've started answering those two questions of whether, uh, whether technology is the problem or the solution. New tech. So is it, is it the problem? It's a problem. It can be problematic because it changes, and it changes fast. And so, yes, there is a problem, but new tech like deepfakes probably won't break truth any more than Photoshop did. That's another prediction. I could be wrong, but we need to work at it. And we need to work at it not just through technology. And conversely, new tech like blockchain won't fix trust. It might be useful, it might underpin trust, but it won't fix it any more than things like LinkedIn fixed trust or clay tablets. But it can help. And so that leads us to the question of what do we do then with, with technology? It's not the problem, it's not the solution, it's just, it's just there. It's there, but it's important. And as, we, as we, we just saw, it can be used to underpin trust, but it can also be used to, to damage trust. And so, and I know that this feels probably like a motherhood and apple pie a little bit, but a healthy society needs trustworthy tech, and vice versa, maybe. And so, I think that what we looked at today kind of looks like this if you try to uh, structure it. That... In order to have a society where truth and trust are maintained, we need access to facts. We need 
things like better systems for provenance and governance, so access and not access. And all those are, are quite technical. Technology has a big role to play in these. But conversely, as we saw with the, uh, the, the notion that uh, California was banning deepfakes for political advertising, there are things that society has to do that are not massively technical, te where technology is just there as an auxiliary. So regulation, laws, certification and audits, all of those things are useful and related to technology, but they're not technology itself. But perhaps the most interesting is that bit in the middle. Um, and I wanted to read you something that um, Sam Gregory from the uh, charity uh, Witness wrote recently that, that I find quite, quite, quite important. And he says, don't build anything without consulting the most affected. And he's talking about deepfakes there again. Talk to the people who are most vulnerable to deepfakes. Even if the goal is to create a deepfake detector, there are plenty of social questions involved. Will it be available for people in other countries? Will it be trained to spot political fakes or gender, gender and sexual violence? Once the infrastructure is set, it's really marginalized people and populations who are excluded because they don't have the agency to change that infrastructure. And that's really, I mean, that is specific to deepfakes, but actually in every single use of technology, those questions are relevant. Who, are, who, are going to, who is going to be affected by, the, by, those, by this? Who is going to be affected by not having access to this technology? That, that kind of negative space of technology is something that we tend to forget. We tend to think, oh, well, use case, use the stories, yeah, yeah. We're, we're helping a, a specific set of users with that technology. But who doesn't have access to that technology is also important. And so that notion of thinking about ethical considerations is really key. And as, as you know, Sam says in, in this quote I just read, engaging with people who are going to be affected rather than just thinking on their behalf is quite important. And equitability of technology is something that we don't talk about quite enough. And that's really interesting to me because that's between those two ends of not very technical and quite technical. And that's, where, that's what keeps it all together. Hopefully, I haven't completely confused you with uh, talks of, uh, of uh, um, uh, Tarkovsky and Tintin kind of mixed together. <laughs> if I have, I apologize. Uh, but I would uh, extend an invitation to continue this conversation. This is just me at this point in time saying it's complicated. There's hope. There's work to do. Uh, and I wanted to uh, give a shout out because otherwise Hannah here is going to uh, never let me come to a, a lunchtime lecture again. Uh, that the conversation, the next step in this conversation is actually going to be at our summit. Uh, we'll have quite a few sessions, but one of the sessions in, in particular will be about uh, practical data ethics. And I would love to see you there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Olivier. Uh, we now have some time for questions. I'll be passing around the mic. Make sure you speak into the mic so people that are not in this room uh, can hear you, because like I said before, it will not amplify your voice. Um, I'm happy to start off with my question that I wrote myself was not given by Olivier, even <laughs> though it's on the exact same paper as his cue cards. That would be very unethical. Very unethical. So, Olivier. Why yes, would increased access to data help fight disinformation if most people only trust their side? That's a really great <laughs> question, Josh. Go on. <laughs> that did sound like a plan, didn't it? <laughs> um, 
So this is a really important question. I mean, uh, when we talk about uh, trust and truth, is it that notion that, that I said earlier, let's, let's get more access to data so that people can relate to that and let's get them more engaged with data through, through things like visualization, through games, through art, through, er through any cultural mechanism we can because raw data is quite hard. Um, there's one, one bit of hope that um, I... I I have read about uh, quite recently, and it, it comes actually from uh, the, the Full Fact research team, um, the, um, the UK uh, fact-checking charity. They looked at that notion of the backfire effect. I don't know if uh, any of you has heard about that, but essentially the idea of the backfire effect is that when someone is entrenched in their opinion, giving them data, facts, that would supposedly change their mind because, oh, oh yeah, you're right. Thanks you for showing me this data. That, that there's this notion that actually it backfires. That when you receive data that doesn't um, uh, align with your deeply entrenched opinions, that you just reject it and get even more entrenched in your opinions. Uh, I actually believed that uh, that theory to be true, but uh, full fact, recently did a, a kind of a, a landscape of studies and have seen that actually the backfire effect doesn't seem to be a thing. So there is hope in that uh, actually possibly showing people facts, data, and, and I think the, the importance there of provenance, making sure you, you explain where it comes from and what, who are those people and let, let them, uh, and let them see where that data came from and how it's been collected. So you need a lot of work on transparency and, 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 and provenance. Uh, but then again, full fact would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> Thank you very much. I look forward to arguing with people on social media now. <laughs> um, anyone have a question in the room? Start over here. Hi. Uh, uh, Sam Cunningham, CEO of Polymonitor. Uh, I'd agree with your point around um, uh, kind of giving uh, people better access to data to hopefully uh, be better informed. But I just wondered if you think, get your take on what you think the kind of the ecosystem is uh, like or how healthy it is in terms of various players coming forward to help crunch kind of all this data and especially people who are, from what I can see, a lot of people perhaps coming forward to do that for kind of private interest but not necessarily for public good. Um, so uh, those of you uh, here probably... Uh, are here because you are, you're friends of the ODI. So I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but yeah, you're, you're completely right. Creating an, an ecosystem of data where, uh, where data is not just um, uh, kept aside for pure purposes, uh, hoarded, or, uh, or vice versa, that where data is used and, and, and uh, collected in trustworthy ways is quite important. And at the, mo and at the moment, we're not, we're not there yet. We've had scandals, we've had problems. So, Creating uh, the mechanisms for more transparency, more openness, but also more trust is, is quite important. We're not, we're not there yet, but there are signs that uh, the ecosystem is maturing. So we are coming from a, um, a world maybe a decade ago where there was basically, I don't know, a little bit of thinking about data mining, but not really any, any cons uh, uh, consideration about what it means for people. And there was a, a budding idea about open data being useful for transparency. And we have really gone quite a long way. There's quite a lot more to do. I would agree with you. Uh, but I think we are kind of on, on a positive slant. Uh, this is, uh, oh, sorry. 
just as a follow-up to that, in terms of not just an ecosystem of data, but do you, would you envisage a world where there's just more sort of players, I don't know what they are, but organisations mm. who can like go in and, and use that data in different ways? I mean, I, rem I remember oh, thinking yeah. back to a time when I was at the Department for Education um, and the government was very keen to put all this data out there and about kind of school results and things like that and hoping essentially that an ecosystem of people would come forward to say, yes, we'll, we'll use this data and come up with weird and wonderful ways to present it to parents who can keep schools and teachers' feet to the fire to improve standards. And to be honest, that didn't come forward because I never really felt that community of, of, of organisations to, to, to build those tools to make that analysis never came forward because I didn't really feel there was ever the, the resources or support or motivations for them to do it. And I, and I just don't know if... I, I, that, that's kind of my question, I guess. It's yeah. kind of... Does it exist? And if it doesn't exist, how would you encourage? How do you think people should be encouraging it to exist? I mean, ecosystems don't build themselves in a day. Uh, you've got uh, you've got to fix some of the infrastructure. You know, the, if you don't have access or good licenses for it, you can't do that. If you don't have the right quality, if you don't have the, the right findability, and we're really still at some levels fixing those things. So the ability to you know use data, contextualize it, present it so that people are better informed, great. But if they can't find the data to begin with or can't use it because it's, it's in terrible shape. So, yeah, the, the, the work that we're still doing as a community, um, data practitioners, is quite infrastructural. And therefore, we don't see that many yet uh, good usage, good contextualization, good um, presentation of the data. Uh, but we've got, we've got some. There are good services that use data. There are people who are quite good at showing data. Our, you know, our national broadcaster is pretty good at this. So we'll, we'll, we should get there, but there's, there's quite a big layer that's needed um, and that we need to work on. Thank you very much. I, I think there was one here. question here and then here. And here. Um, you shared that quote about the shopping center where you'd walked in. Um, yeah, I'll and put it back on the screen. You said that was all terrible and really creepy. Maybe you could explain exactly what it is that you think is so bad about this marketing approach that is very real right now? Uh, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a very personal reaction. Um, there is, in, in my mind, um, something very uh, alienating and um, abusive to seeing myself represented in ways that I don't have agency for. The, the idea that someone took my image and made it into something that it's now playing back at me to, to sell me something feels quite viscerally abusive. I, again, uh, that, that, that bit... Yeah, yeah, no, seriously. No, I, I am not joking. I agree. I, and, and I'm not saying this is a very personal thing. I, I, I'm assuming that some people will be completely cool with it. But for me, it is, it is really a violating thing. So is it because, is it because when you walked in, you were not aware that the image was being taken, or was it um, because you really didn't want to buy those very very attractive? Trainers? No, it's it's a it's a fundamental thing. It's it's a it, it's it is a fundamental thing about what it is to be me and what it is to see myself in a in you're really violating the whole principles of identity and memory by doing that. So, uh, so that's really what I'm trying to get to, because um, it is about a consent issue. 
it is partly about consent, but I mean, genuinely, I... I, I it's more emotional. Like, yeah, I think for me, it's a very visceral I thing. I wouldn't like it to see myself younger. Okay, I would like to see myself younger. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see myself younger, uh, but I mean, as a, human, as a being, we evolve, we, we born, then we reach maturity, then we die. You know? And then uh, using my images, youngest images of myself, uh, or the digitally uh, young image of, uh, image of myself, in order to sell something, I wouldn't enjoy, I wouldn't like. Uh, is that uh, using, now the marketing, the use of someone else in my image, and a model or something like that, now it's more close to us because they can use uh, VR, AR, any type of manipulation in order to sell, but uh, it's a bit weird. Yeah. And, and we may, apart from and, and, uh, uh, to, 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 to build upon what David was, uh, was saying here uh, uh, we can be maybe desensitized to, to it I mean the fact that we are getting used to applications that put filter on us that we are using upon ourselves we may be getting used to it and maybe that in 10 years I'll look back at what I just said today and go that was so cute but at the moment I think this is a violation of my, my notion of identity and memory and I can't explain it much much more than that. I'm not, sadly, uh, enough of a philosopher to explain that, but are there philosophers in the room? Well, when we don't like So we had a few more questions. Thank you. Um, so it's kind of related to the first question that came up, um, especially, so I come from an organisation that does a lot of work on the kind of equity and engagement type of thing. Um, and my question is, yeah, that basically where you think the resources are going to come from to develop that because what we found really works is something that is very in-depth resource intensive with a very small group of people and you have to choose those people quite carefully and target them and understand a lot about them before you start working with them on this stuff um, and that's not really the scale of impact that uh, the people that are creating the technology or the laws on either side of that want to talk to you about they want something that is much, much cheaper and works with a lot more people. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just interested in your take on that and whether you think it's because, whether they, they think they care enough to actually invest at the scale that is needed to make change on that middle thing. That's a great question. Uh, so I'm going to answer as a technologist. I don't have all the answers. I keep saying that, but generally I don't. But as a technologist who's been working in, in kind of relatively disruptive fields for 20 years, I can tell you that the field of technology is realizing that we've been extremely naive, that we have not done our homework in terms of you know, ethics, engagement, equity, that we've been, you know, that, that motto of move fast and break things was completely cool only five years ago, and that's changing fast. And so the second part of my answer is I think actually the tech companies and companies that use technology or develop it will be more and more incentivized to do that work, even though it is expensive, because not doing it would be more expensive. So some of them will, will, will see it, and we're already seeing that in our work on, on data ethics. Some companies are seeing it as a commercial, um, definitely not a commercial person, a commercial advantage. advantage. That's not the word I was looking for, but I'll take it. Thank you very much, Jenny. Uh, so as a commercial advantage to, to be ethical and to be transparent and to do that engagement work, and some, some are seeing it as an uh, insurance policy against scandals. Either way, they are more and more incentivized to do the right thing. 
So whether they will actually put the right amount of investment, as you were saying, these, these are really um, heavy uh, processes and tech is quite happy generally with having a lot, a, a very small uh, staff and a lot of capital and doing the reverse is quite uh, anathema to the tech industry, but that, that's a change that I think is going to come because otherwise they will keep be being hit by scandals and the general population is going to be demanding it more and more. We've got uh, one question here. Yeah. It's a commercial offering you're looking for? No? no. Uh, hi. Um, competitive advantage. Competitive advantage. So was an advantage was the right... <laughs> no, no, never mind. Sorry, go ahead. So the question is kind of a bit more uh, taking the whole thing about data and facts to a bit more granular or may, mm -hmm. maybe a bit more to the core. So is it like a question between uh, glass half full and glass half empty? Or is it like between, you know, left versus right in terms of political, you know, uh, spectrum? Because th there is a lot of things that happens, you know, beyond a factual number, like, you know, yeah. um, you know, somebody winning one thing or one death or something. But then there is a lot of things that layers that one fact. Um, so where do we stand in that, you know, in that um, engagement or, or, or argument? So I, I, I'm going to half answer this because I think you'd need a political scientist to answer it properly. I, I, my view of this, my, my perception of this is that um, there is an increased visibility of a political discourse that is effective and not uh, factual. Now, whether that is a cyclical thing or a rise in it that, or, a, uh, or a pendulum, I don't know. All I know is what we can do about it. And you know, as a, that, that might be a little bit solutionist. That may be the technologist in me thinking, I don't know why, but I'm going to try and figure out the how. Uh, but so I don't quite know what uh, specifics of the kind of political spectrums are, are more or less um, attuned to data. But we know that um, people are getting more and more data literate. They used to be fed uh, statistics, and now they're actually much more attuned to just saying, here's the data, have, have a look at the data. And, they, and as we progress towards that, the political discourse will change, hopefully. We had Perfect. one, two more questions, and then we might see if there are questions from the Twitters. Not yet, okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, one of the uh, things that we just covered in one of the previous questions was about what is the uh, incentive to act properly, mm. and particularly what's the incentive to act ethically. Mm. Um, obviously having regulation and laws is one good way. Um, one of the things that we looked at in the data trust report was actually how do you make uh, doing the right thing with data as reputationally relevant as doing the right thing with money? Um, so obviously if you misuse your, your money or you, you forge your accounts, you get in serious trouble. How do you get to the same point with data, I guess was my question, quite a big question. Yeah, good one. <laughs> um, so what, what's interesting is that, um, and the idea loves talking in spectrums, and, and this is again a spectrum. Um, laws are slow, and so we can't just re rely on laws. Uh, regulation is typically kind of bounded by sectors, and therefore we can't just rely on that. Um, and uh, the, the, the work that we are doing, and actually that we worked uh, with you on, on that uh, data trust pilot work, is about figuring out whether we can create 
data institutions that are underpinned by legislation, by regulation, by, um, you know, um, uh, repeatable frameworks like legal frameworks. The data trust is essentially about, well, it's partly about that, by technology. And, and when you have all, all that together, you have uh, incentives, but also frameworks that keep actors, uh, and kind of guide them to do the right, the right thing. Having that notion of trustees that are uh, in charge of making sure data is used in the best interest of the people that are affected by this, this data is one way, to, one way to do that. So you create boundaries that do that. Um, but yeah, literally, I think, the, the, uh, I think you need the whole of all those points for it to be healthy and for people to do the, the right thing. Well, for, for most people to do the right thing. Some people will do the right thing just because they think like that. Some people think that it is competitive advantage. But in order to have more people doing that without just waiting for laws to catch up, then yeah, we'll, need, we'll need frameworks, we'll need uh, structures, and we'll need incentives. We had one more question here. Hello, I'm Janine. I'm a software engineer and also a Tintin fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, movie or, the movie or the comics? All of them, I'm afraid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't worry, I won't. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> we won't go into it. <laughs> so I think I have a question based on if I've interpreted this correctly. You're kind of indicating hypervisualization is something that can fuel deep fakes and is a problem. If I got that right. <laughs> can, you, can you give me a little more detail about what you're thinking? Because I'm not sure I understand. Oh, so how I interpreted these slides and comparing it with the Japanese anime. Um, Between this and that. Yeah. yeah. The whole idea, because my question was going to be like, I've always interpreted this as people pushing boundaries on computer graphics. And as a fan of animated films and video games, and the fact that SIGGRAPH as a conference exists, mm -hmm. um, this shows that, people are also excited about pushing boundaries. Yeah. And I wanted to ask if I got it correct that this is something that's fueling deep fakes or is seen as a problem. How can educating in computer graphics and pushing those boundaries coexist with educating people about deep fakes? Uh, that's a really good question. I think those, th there are two strands to the answer. One of the strands is it's not just about the novelty and the pushing of it. There, there, there is... A, um, there is a genuine thing about once it becomes very, very similar to what we're used to in reality, we start looking for the little details. And, th and there's um, so Tintin, sorry, uh, there were a lot of reviews that said it's beautiful, but it's soulless. There's nothing in those eyes. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. And th there's, so there's something in there that you know in the in the in the words of another famous uh, technologist uh, you you've been thinking so much about whether you could you, you haven't really th thought about whether you sh you should yeah tick uh, but uh, but but you said something quite important there about the the, um, the education and the um, and and how we get habituated to things and it may well be that little by little that uh, that that um, uncanny valley will kind of lift because we we'll just get used to it and it's less and less weird to us and, less, and we not stop looking for the thing in those eyes. Um, but whether, whether more education on computer graphics will help people um, 
deal with uh, manipulation for kind of uh, nefarious uh, purposes? I don't think so, because I, I genuinely think that most of the population have seen really good CGI. They know it's very good CGI. It, the, the problem with deepfakes is that is at another level that knowing it exists. I think that that's now fairly accepted that technology is good enough to really try and fool you. Uh, although, interestingly, the one case of, of someone being fooled out of a lot of money was done with audio, not video. And that, again, gets back to my... Uh, that, that gut reaction with deepfakes, it, it, it being viscerally rejecting it, much easier to fool people with audio than with video. If, if there's one thing that we need to be worried about, it's not, it's not the videos, it's, it's, the, um, it's the human voice, because that's easier to uh, trick the mind into. Good time for one more question. Thank you. Uh, hi. Um, more of a sort of conversation starter than, I don't know, the question is, I'm, you know, in our world where we have our news curated by whatever massive organization who could have their own interests which mm -hmm. aren't necessarily in the best public interest um it's hard to be you know finding objective truth and also uh, we all seem to be descending into echo chambers of our own personal interests surrounded by people who are similar to mm -hmm. us and how does anybody you know from different sides of any argument come together to find common ground and find truth and and also the fact that, you know, things which, the, say, for example, government address as, you know, needs, are they, how, how do they determine those? I was thinking maybe an idea if we, I mean, I always thought the European referendum was a bad idea, just to say. But if, we, <laughs> if we're going to have a referendum, why not have more? Why not have them every day, every week, whatever, where we sort of vote questions that we actually want addressed and then we actually all answer what we think and then maybe that, that could be a way of measuring public opinion in a real and unbiased way using some sort of blockchain technology for that. I don't know. What, my question was going to be, what is the biggest missing piece of the puzzle of this ecosystem of truth? I don't know the answer. That's, that's a good one to finish on. Um, yeah. I'm not going to address everything. I'm going to set aside the questions about referenda because, nope. Uh, but on the, on the information and the, the, the health of our information ecosystem and how we deal with it, I actually think we're in a, good place. I know it doesn't necessarily sound like that because um, social media s looks a lot like a, like a con constant shouting match. But if you look at uh, studies, what I've seen so far is that actually people are, again, pe people are, know about the, the notion of filter bubbles. People know that there are algorithms that are hyper uh, curated for them. And for some things, they're going to be happy with it for a while. For entertainment, they're probably going to be okay with it being just comfortable. But actually for information, more and more, more, and more people are actively looking be beyond it. And to some extent, the answer is, well, know when convenience is a good thing and know where convenience is not the right thing for you and do the work. And we're seeing studies it's somewhat generational, but we're seeing studies that people are going beyond the bubbles because they know that the bubbles exist and they actually want varied information. Not, not the whole world and, you know, the future is, an even, is unevenly distributed. Another quote tick. Uh, but there's, I'm, I'm quite optimistic and hopeful about that because people know about those, uh, uh, the, 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 the fact that technology tends to reduce your, your field of view for convenience and they actually go beyond that. Uh, about putting it all on a blockchain. No, don't. <laughs> and I think we'll end on that because we're out of time. <laughs> thank you so much, thank everyone, you very much, for everyone. joining. And thank you, Olivier, for your wonderful talk. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture. 
brought to you by the Open Data Institute.